25 minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. It's your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Rabbi Beryl Wine has been taking us through the uh, nine days format with some interesting lectures about the United States and its Jews. And uh, the final lecture in this series involves the uh, topic of declining Jewish society, assimilation, and intermarriage. The United States and its Jews are a barrel wine at JM in the AM. To a great extent, uh, the last half of the 20th century uh, was the golden age of American Jewry. That does not necessarily mean that the golden age has completely ended, but it certainly is changing. And uh, American Jewry, uh, I'm talking generally. People last week asked me why I didn't uh, mention certain specific organizations and uh, personages. Um, This is uh, an overview. It's not a detailed uh, history at all. So you'll forgive me. If I omit everyone, so then no one is hurt. American Jewry from uh, the end of the Second World War uh, till the 1990s uh, was built, again, general American Jewry. I'm not talking about the yeshiva world. I'm not talking about the Hasidic world. I'm not even talking about the modern Orthodox world per se. But 80% then, maybe today it's different, but 80% then of American Jewry was not in the yeshiva world, was not in the Hasidic world, was not in the Orthodox world. So what were the pillars of Jewish life that sustained them? that made them Jewish, uh, that somehow uh, gave content to the American Jewish community. So there were three pillars, in my opinion, uh, that have to be examined. One was the Holocaust. Uh, The Holocaust uh, remains the elephant in the room. It remains the uh, most studied subject and the most taboo subject in the Jewish world. Therefore, it's interesting that in many Jewish schools in the United States, it, uh, it's not taught. You can go uh, 12 years of Jewish education in uh, schools in the United Jewish schools, very Jewish schools, and not hear a word said. The reasons for this are uh, many, but the most obvious reason is because the Holocaust raises many more problems than it solves. It's a a great theological problem. It's a great problem of faith. 
and it flies in the face of all human logic. Uh, all history classes uh, deal with human logic, causes and effects, why certain things happened, what was the proximate cause, what was the far distant cause, what was the result, why did it happen, who was responsible, etc., etc. The Holocaust does not fit into any of that template. We have no answers to the question, so therefore many have chosen never to ask the questions. How did God let this happen? Whose fault was it? Because Jews are people who love to know whose fault it is. And most of the time it's our fault. There's this nature within us that the victim is uh, the guilty party. We see it portrayed here in Israel. All the problems in the Middle East, it's us. If we only bum, 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 then all the problems would disappear. When uh, most of the problems have nothing to do with us. It's part of our conceit. A part of our arrogance that we think, uh, you know, it's all because of us. So therefore, uh, one reaction to the Holocaust and even the reaction of many, if not most of the survivors for a number of decades was not to talk about it, not to raise the issue, not to ask, not to tell. And then a great change occurred. I think part of the change was because of people like Wiesel and others that began to write about it. Wiesel wrote his great book, Night, which I still think is probably the most powerful book about the Holocaust experience. Uh, the uh, other works were written. Martin Gilbert wrote a uh, very, very great book called The Holocaust. And then you had Deborah Lipstadt and you had others that wrote about it. Now, as I can tell you, uh, writing about it and people reading it are two different matters. But it began to penetrate. It was a small book written by a French Jew called Treblinka, which uh, I read uh, in the 1960s and uh, which gave me uh, uh, a decade of horror. Because it it's not just a description, but it raised all of the issues. And I think only six or eight people survived there. 300,000 were killed in, in a few months. And these were great Jews. Hasidic uh, Rebbes, uh, Russia Yeshiva, babies. People for whom we have no easy answers. So then there began an industry in America, an American Jewish life. That industry is the Holocaust industry. 
it raises a tremendous amount of money even today. The Panavijarov told me uh, that, that he was going to make a Holocaust memorial in Panavij Yeshiva, which he did, the old Kadoshim. But the Oel Kadoshim, the yeshiva has expanded so much that the Oel Kadoshim is no longer the Oel Kadoshim, it's part of the Beis Medrash. But he told me openly, he said, uh, if I go to people and I tell them I'm making the Oel Kadoshim, I'm making the hall in memory of the Holocaust, people give me money. If I go to them, I tell them I'm making a yeshiva, what do we need it for? And therefore it became an industry. And as part of the industry were Holocaust museums. Now the Holocaust museums, Yad Vashem is the originator probably of it. The Yad Vashem is not as nearly as graphic as, for instance, the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, which is the third largest tourist attraction in Washington, D.C. And it's not from Jews. And the same thing, uh, the Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles has its Holocaust Museum. I think they call it Museum of Tolerance. And also uh, hundreds of thousands, if not more, go through its doors. Public schools uh, arrange trips. Everybody comes. But Holocaust Museums send mis mixed messages because the central issue is never answered. <coughs> and therefore, uh, there's a limit to how many rooms of hair and of shoes and of suitcases you can see. And after a while, you become immune to that as well. Just as the perpetrators of the Holocaust in the death camps became immune to what they were doing. They lived normal lives. They, you know, they got done uh, killing people in the day. They went home to their wives at night. They had supper. Played soccer. Got up in the morning and killed some more people. So it has a numbing effect. But that became one of the focal points of American Jewry to remember. And American Jewry coined phrases, never again. We're not going to let it happen again, as though we have the power to, God forbid, prevent it. And uh, only people who feel that it can happen again say never again, right? You don't hear the non-Jewish world say never again. It's our slogan. But the Holocaust was, was a, an overriding psychological trauma on American Jewry. And much of it was because there was a great sense of guilt that American Jewry didn't do anything about it. 
that somehow we were so powerless that we let it happen. So I mentioned last time that, you know, there was this uh, demonstration in 1943 by 300 Orthodox rabbis on the steps of the Capitol. But that demonstration, again, as I mentioned, was opposed by American Jewry. They felt it was unpatriotic. Roosevelt told them he's going to take care of it. So then what are you doing? You don't believe in Roosevelt? And to the Jewish world in the 1940s, early 1940s, I grew up then, Roosevelt was, if not God, certainly one of the angels. And now, when it was revealed that uh, the angels had clay feet, uh, so then that was a great disappointment. But American Jewry never knew how to deal with it. Never knew what to do about it. And those who spoke about it were roundly criticized. I remember my teacher, Professor Eliezer Berkowitz, uh, blessed memory, whom I studied with in Chicago. Later he was here in Israel and he was a he was a, a philosopher, a historian. He was a, a man of great thought, great talent. I had to forgive him for being Hungarian, but otherwise... Uh, <laughs> but he went to Germany. He went to Hildesheimer Seminary. It was an interest variant. So he wrote a book, uh, not a book, a pamphlet that I read in uh, the late 1950s. And that pamphlet, I reread it maybe 50 times. It was about 60 pages long. And it was about uh, the uh, post-Christian world. That the Holocaust marked the end of Christianity. It had run its course. And he said the church was morally bankrupt and that the murderers were all Christians and that they were willing abettors to the uh, horrors of the Holocaust. I cannot describe to you the flack that he took because that was un-American. In America, everybody is good. It, until our time, it, it was like that. Now we know that half of America is evil. But when I grew up, everybody was good. So you couldn't speak against the church. And you couldn't speak against any of those things. And you couldn't say uh, bad things about the Pope. You just couldn't. And the more the Holocaust became discussed, and the more these writings came out, 
the more confused Jewish America became. Because all of a sudden, it dawned upon many American Jews that intrinsically remaining Jewish is a dangerous profession. So indirectly, the Holocaust and the knowledge of the Holocaust proved to be a spur to assimilation. Because who wants to raise children that, uh, that they're going to be, uh, you know, God forbid, who knows what's going to happen to them. So you have subtle changes in Jewish life. Names change. It's not, it's not, uh, not fitting to give Jewish names. So non-Jewish names became the Jewish names. It's ironic that uh, when you uh, meet somebody who's named Jeffrey, you automatically assume he's Jewish. Because his parents didn't want to name him Yaakov. So that morphed. Bernard, there are all sorts of names like that. I remember that when I uh, attended public school, so one of my, uh, I think in third grade, hard to believe I was once in third grade, but, uh, <laughs> but I was outstanding then as well. <laughs> so the teacher came to my home, to my parents' home, and she said, you know, he should re you should really change his first name. She called him Bernard. Why do you want to inflict on him that all of his life he should be called Beryl? And my mother, who was a very uh, strong woman and who had a great influence upon me, said, He'll do all right as Beryl, I'm not worried. And she threw her out. But there were plenty of Jewish children on my block that changed their Jewish names. Because of this negative, negative psychological burden. Now in the yeshiva, where I had uh, rabbeim teachers, who had gone through the Holocaust, they taught us to be proud. Uh, I had one teacher that he began every class that we recited, uh, how happy we are, who we are, what we are, etc., etc. And he had a number on his arm. I didn't, uh, I, was, uh, I didn't grasp the full uh, import of all of that till much later in life. The rabbis teach us that you don't appreciate a, uh, a teacher until 40 years have passed. 
That's why all these lectures are recorded. <laughs> but uh, I, as I look back at it, what a remarkable thing. What a, what a, look what he did. And I saw that from the Satmarov when he was in Miami Beach, is that somebody approached him uh, after uh, the uh, Shachrit service, and he asked him for a blessing. And the Rebbe said to him, you see that Jew there who has a number on his arm and it's wrapped with tefillin, go ask him for a blessing. So that was a different attitude, but that was not the general attitude of American Jewry. And the more museums and the more books, the greater the impetus was. Never again, and we got to get out of this. And that somehow we contributed to it because we're different. We didn't integrate into European society. We were communists. I heard all of this. And that's frightening. And it remains so until today. So the Holocaust had a great deal to do with American Jewry's current conditions. The second pillar was the complete opposite, was the creation of the State of Israel. I don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that the State of Israel saved the Jewish people in the second half of the 20th century. It uh, gave the Jewish world a focal point, and it enlisted positive action. People were inspired to try and help it. And there was a period of time about, uh, I think, till 1956, till the Sinai campaign. The first uh, really 10 years from 1946 when the struggle began, uh, that was the golden age for the state of Israel in the eyes of American Jewry. So then American Jewry rallied to the side of the state of Israel, even though the state of Israel then was far more leftist than it has ever been since. And it was far more secular than it ever has been since. But that none of that made a difference. I remember in 1948 when the state was declared. So uh, it was declared on Friday afternoon. I remember walking to shul with my father. And my father, uh, who wasn't a Lithuanian Jew, wept every step of the way. I didn't know what he was crying about. So that Sunday evening, the Zionist organization in Chicago had a rally in the Chicago Stadium, which later would be made 
famous by Michael Jordan. <laughs> and Golda Meir was in America then raising money. She had a parlor meeting. The, the Jewish mafia made a parlor meeting for her. Now, when the mafia makes a parlor meeting, it's successful. <laughs> you got an invitation, you came, and you brought an envelope. And the Jewish gangsters were proud to be Jews. And they arranged uh, with their uh, non-Jewish uh, confederates who controlled the uh, the docks in New York and Philadelphia and San Francisco, the longshoremen, and even though the American government forbade the shipment of arms to Israel, uh, somehow the arms got there. So at that rally, there were 20,000 people inside the stadium and there were another 20,000 people outside in the parking lot. I remember all of my rabbeim from the yeshiva went, even though none of them were Zionists. And uh, the program began with the raising of the Israeli flag to the rafters of the Chicago Stadium. And 40,000 people wept, wept uncontrollably for minutes and minutes on end. The whole 2,000 years poured out. Then I, I was still young, but I uh, had opinions already. If it would have been up to me, I said to the, uh, my friend from the yeshiva who was next to me, I said, it was up to me, I would say, no program, let's all go home. That's it. Because everything else is going to be anticlimactic, which it was. All the speeches and everything was, you know, speeches. So uh, the state of Israel offered American Jewry a moment of redemption. A redemption from not doing anything in the Holocaust. <laughs> Redemption from changing their first names. Redemption from driving on Shabbos. Redemption from the whole process that was going to affect them. And therefore they rallied to it because instinctively they realized that this was a chance for them. A chance for them to be Jewish. And Ben-Gurion came to uh, Chicago in 1952 uh, launching the Israel bond drive. So he, there was a banquet uh, dinner in the uh, Stevens Hotel, which then was uh, the major hotel. It was pre-Trump. <laughs> I remember that, again, my rabbeim went to the banquet. They didn't eat. They stood in the back. And I remember standing with them and uh, 
people lined up to give him money, to buy bonds. I think the minimum was $5,000, which then was a lot of money. And there was a line, I mean, and he was there for an hour, an hour and a half, shaking hands, you know, and everybody. So the next day in the shear, in the class, so one of us brave souls asked the Rebbe, what did he think about the Ben-Gurion and the, the whole thing? You know, Ben-Gurion was, to put it mildly, uh, not uh, the greatest pious Jew. So we thought, uh, now we're going to hear it, right? We want to, I mean, we like, we're going to egg him on that he's going to. So he said, you know what I thought when I was there? He said, I thought, look at the children of Avram Avinu lining up to give money. What a sight. I remember that until today. The children of Avram Avinu. Because he realized that was a redemptive moment. That was a moment when they were the children of Avram Avinu. And therefore, that became a pillar of Jewish life. We were going to have bond drives, we were going to have the UJA, the Israelis always came to collect money, the government came, everything. And we even began then to start to lobby the United States government to be more friendly, because they were not. The Eisenhower administration and John Foster Dulles we're not our friends. And then in 1956, <laughs> Israel conducted the Sinai campaign. <laughs> and American Jewry was shocked because Jews aren't supposed to be aggressive. What do you mean you invaded Egypt? What do you mean you're sitting at the Suez Canal? That's not Jewish. And when Eisenhower and the Russians forced Israel to withdraw and set in motion the whole thing that's still going on, Gaza and the whole shebang that's still going on, <coughs> Hasn't changed a bit since 1956. 63 years, but it's all the same. American Jewry was conflicted. It could not be against American foreign policy because that would raise the specter of disloyalty. But how do you swallow this Jewish state that somehow no longer has the exile mentality and is not willing to roll over and be destroyed? So I remember that there were reform rabbis. The reform basically was anti-Zionist from its inception, very much so. 
but the Holocaust temporarily put a break upon their public statements. But after the Sinai campaign, that break was removed. And for the first time, you heard rabbis say Israel is wrong. Shouldn't have done it. It's not moral. Because we all know that only outsiders are the correct judges and arbiters of morality. So there began a deterioration in the support for the state of Israel. Not only that, the state of Israel was poor, needed money. So, uh, to a certain extent, the American Jewry began to feel put upon. Individuals came, organizations came, the government came. And you started to have political pressure in Washington to include the state of Israel in all sorts of appropriation bills. And there were Jews that said, why should the American taxpayer have to pay money to support the state of Israel? Then the Six-Day War happened. So the month before the Six-Day War, when Nasser was going to throw us all into the sea, American Jewry believed it because they had this (coughs) psychological fixation of the Holocaust. So we didn't know what to do. The truth is no one knew what to do. People literally walked around in a daze. I remember I was around Miami Beach. People came to the shul and sat there all day. These are people who owned stores, who had jobs. They just came to the shul. They didn't even pray. They came to the shul and sat. Because look what's going to happen. And then when the astounding victory happened, there never was such a feeling of euphoria in American Jewish life as then. And a lot of things happened then. After Israel won, you you were able to wear a kippah in the street and there was no problem. And you were able to be a Jew and you were able to say, I want this job and I want that job and I'm entitled and I don't want to be discriminated against and Jews are not a minority anymore. All of that was a product of the Six-Day War. It reinvigorated American Jewry. But again, that didn't last. 
because again, Israel did not fit the template of the perfect state that American Jewry wanted it to be. It's not nice to rule over the Arabs. It's not nice to knock down all the buildings in front of the Kotel. And then when the Yom Kippur War occurred, and that was really the most dangerous war, except for the War of Independence that Israel fought, American Jewry was divided as to what should be done. And there began there two separate streams completely opposite to each other. One stream is to make peace at any cost. Nothing nothing should stand in the way whatever peace the Arabs are willing to give, we should accept. You hear echoes of that today as well. And the other extreme was, now we're going to settle the whole land, we're going to kick out all the Arabs, and we're going to have uh, the original Jewish state with its original boundaries, etc., etc. And these two streams still exist. But in the eyes of American Jewry, peace, because if Israel is at peace with the Arabs, the American Jewry has no problems with its conscience. It has no uh, conflicts good, I'm a good American, I'm a good Jew I'm I'm for Israel, you see Israel is the nicest place in the world everybody loves it but then it turned out that Israel is uh, subject to all the United Nations resolutions and is subject to all of the discrimination and this has been going on for 50 years so American Jewry is uncomfortable very uncomfortable. You have that in the United States today. You have J Street, you know. And you have APEC. And you have others. It's all conflicted. And then the third pillar... was Soviet Jewry. Again, driven by the two other pillars. It was driven by the Holocaust. We were quiet during the Holocaust. We didn't do anything then. And now we have uh, millions of our brethren behind the Iron Curtain who are subject to discrimination and not allowed freedom to immigrate. 
And this was a positive way to support the state of Israel. Because American Jewry expected and pushed that the Russian Jews should go to Israel. And this created uh, very strong undercurrent within American Jewry to support Soviet Jews. Now the official line by the leadership of American Jewry was not to do anything. Not to rock the boat, we're in the middle of the Cold War. American foreign policy with Russia and with the East should not be affected by Jewish issues. And uh, again, it made Jews uncomfortable because why should Soviet Jewry be a political issue in the United States? Where, for instance, the Armenians are not a political issue or the Georgians or the Uzbekids or everybody else that's having a hard time in Russia. But uh, there were Jews that were determined to raise the issue of Soviet Jewry. And again, I mentioned I, I knew great rabbis in the United States who objected to the push for Soviet Jews. They said, you're making the situation worse, which was the typical attitude in the 18th and 19th century regarding all matters of Jews in Eastern Europe. Don't make waves. And uh, there was a split in the Orthodox community regarding it. I remember it very well. But this undercurrent, there were Jews that risked a lot. They started to smuggle uh, Jewish artifacts into the Soviet Union. Rabbi Tights, uh, through political influence with senators uh, and the State Department, the uh, Soviet Union allowed uh, Sidurim, prayer books, to be brought in by tourists. So it said, for tourists only. But every tourist left the prayer book in the Soviet Union. He didn't come out with it. I, just as a personal aside, uh, people from uh, Muncie who traveled to the Soviet Union on these, on these uh, missions, and the KGB knew about it and they threw you out in two days or three days after giving you a hard time. So they smuggled in an entire series of my history tapes. And I remember years later, I met a Russian Jew, and he said to me, you know, we listened to all of your history tapes. And it was of immense value to us. Not because of the content, but we wanted to learn English. <laughs> They probably speak English with a Chicago accent, but uh, 
but there was an effort to do something. And then they protested in front of the Russian embassy, and they made the Isaiah Wall. Uh, the activity was uh, pronounced. And then finally they were successful in getting the United States Senate to put in the Jackson-Vanik Amendment, which said that Russia would suffer economically until it allowed Jews to leave. And Russia did suffer economically because of it. And that amendment, these are not Jewish congressmen or senators that did that. So it became a cause. And it was a cause that reverberated simply because of the fact that America was against Russia. It was certainly safe to be against the Soviet Union. It's safe to ask for freedom. And therefore, it served as a unifying force. And it was successful. It was one of the most unbelievable miracles of our time is that the Soviet Union was brought down. And it was brought down without a shot. And uh, in my humble opinion, it was the Jews that did it. The Jewish dissidents in the Soviet Union who wouldn't let uh, the world forget what was what communism really looked like and the Jewish position in the United States Jewish population and the pressure of the state of Israel and there was a book I forget who wrote it one of the uh, in the 1960s uh, one of the uh, No, he had a pen name for the book. Uh, he was like an. Uh, he, he had. He, then Israel still had uh, uh, diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. wasn't broken until the Six Day War. He was there before, and he wrote about uh, uh, the Jewish situation in the, the Soviet Union. And he had there an interesting observation that the Soviet Union was able to blackmail the Arabs by saying, if you don't do what we want you to do, we can send a million Jews to Israel and they'll absorb them and then you'll never be able to touch Israel again. Which is what happened. But that was their leverage, that was their threat. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, so uh, an enormous amount of Soviet Jews came to Israel. Eventually they become integrated in the country. They were had a very successful Aliyah. And whatever they are, they're more Jewish here than they were there. It's one of the uh, many, many miracles of the age. So if we look at American Jewry today, all three pillars have collapsed. The Holocaust is passe. 
Spielberg made Schindler's List and it's over, that's it. What else do you want? We gave you what you wanted, Schindler's List. We don't want to hear stories about it anymore. And the museums are all sterile. And I don't know what impression the school children have when they leave them, what the lasting impression is. But it's hard to sell it. And the state of Israel is also uh, a large portion of American Jewry are not on the side of the state of Israel. They don't like its government, they don't like its prime minister, they don't like its policies, it's too Jewish. The Haredim are running it. We thought we got rid of them a long time ago. too aggressive and embarrasses us. And the Soviet Union has disappeared. We want it, so that's over. So there is no rallying point. There's nothing, there's no glue anymore to hold it together. Now, in the Orthodox world, the glue is Torah and observance of commandments in the Jewish way of life. But the Orthodox world in the United States is a bubble. And because of that, therefore, uh, the separation between it and the rest of American Jewry is enormous. And the gulf is growing because the Orthodox world is becoming, uh, so to speak, more Orthodox. And there's no limit to how more Orthodox you can become. And the rest of the Jewish society is becoming less and less Jewish to the extent that. Uh, all the day schools face a, an issue. Uh, what do you do with the children of intermarried couples? What if they apply? So most of them never are interested. But there are cases where they are interested. What do you do? How do you deal with that problem? And uh, most of the Jewish community centers in the United States cater to the non-Jewish public, not to the Jewish public. Therefore, they're all open on the Sabbath. They don't have kosher food. Why should they? Their, their, their clientele is not Jewish. So you have this gulf that becomes wider and wider. And uh, that really is a uh, difficult, difficult position. Now, history has taught us that many times what we cannot solve ourselves, outside forces come and somehow solve it for us. 
So I don't know what the outside forces are. And I don't know if they're positive or, God forbid, negative. But if nothing happens, the American Jewish community is going to become much, much smaller in numbers, much less influential in politics, much less powerful in all of the realms that it achieved until now. And in that, there also lies an inherent danger. So the uh, future is uncertain. But I don't think we should despair uh, because, the, first of all, America, there's never been an exile like America before. So maybe it will prove to be exceptional in these areas as well. And uh, one never knows what's going to happen. One never knows who's going to become president of the United States and have a satyr in the White House. And there are a lot of things that one never knows. And even people like me who know won't tell you, so <laughs> we have to... Uh, we have to keep all of that in mind when we assess the present and the future of American Jewry. And we have to pray and hope for the best, that the Lord will bless us and strengthen us and we'll be privileged to hear and see good news. J.M. and the A.M. Sorry, Beryl Wine, the United States and its Jews, was the name of this series and uh, Declining Jewish Society. Assimilation and intermarriage, the topic of this one. And as um, and as uh, frightening as uh, that title may be, it is amazing to hear by wine at the end of that lecture, be optimistic and um, and toss out the possibility that maybe maybe the exile here is a bit different than some of the prior ones in our history. I think it's a hard argument to make, but it certainly gives one room for optimism and hope. JMNAM on a Thursday, on this 4th of August, day number 7 in the month of Menachem Av. We are in the middle of our nine days format, and today we are concentrating on Rabbi Wine's lectures here at JMNAM. In fact, in the 7 o'clock hour, we're going to go to his Essential Classics series, Mesilas Yasharim. We've spent a lot of time on the um, topic of Musser and faith and uh, reliance on God and uh, how one must conduct themselves, etc. And uh, we'll get a perspective on the history of the essential classic entitled Mesilas Yasharim, which is always viewed as one of the centerpieces of that entire movement, what we call the Musser movement, and what we call the um, introspection that one needs to have regarding one's own life. So we will uh, have that for you coming up. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, one 800 499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Listener Tikva asks on the app if there'll be a Kalbach stories on Monday, the day after Tisha B'Av. That has been a tradition for us on the 10th of Av. This year, however, since Tisha B'Av is being observed on the 10th of Av, we are going to go straight into our regular format uh, this coming Monday, please God. So Monday morning, you'll hear a regular 
format uh, again, beginning again here at JM in the AM. And um, that'll take us, hopefully, please God, all the way until uh, until we get back to our Sphere format next year. So that's the plan. The plan is that this Monday we go back to our regular format. Again, Tishabov being observed Sunday on the 10th of Av. Uh, usually we use the 10th of Av to bridge the gap between our formats uh, with stories, etc. But this time around we will be uh, just going straight into our regular format. This is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Our listeners sponsored digital radio around the world of web and the Nachum Segal Network and of course any beloved NSN app. Thursday here at uh, NSN and that means that Yassi Zweig will be conducting an exclusive Thursday live lunch three week style for us coming up at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Make sure to be tuned in. We'll have that for you coming up at 11 o'clock Eastern Time. It's a Thursday live lunch. Again, three-week style, acapella, etc. Hosted by Yossi Zweig, exclusive for us on a Thursday here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Tomorrow, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He'll join us at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time tomorrow for the weekly update. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Thursday is next. We say Boker Tov from JM in the AM. גלי צהל השעה שתיים, צהריים טובים באולפן גוני כהן עם מה שקורה עכשיו. שר הביטחון גנץ ייכנס בעוד כשעה הערכת מצב עם הרמטכ"ל, ראש אמ"ן ובכירים נוספים במערכת הביטחון בעקבות המתיחות בדרום, מדווח כתבנו הצבאי דורון קדוש. גנץ ייכנס הערכת מצב בהשתתפות הרמטכ"ל כוכבי, ראש אגף המודיעין, חליבה ובכירים נוספים במערכת הביטחון. במקביל באוגדת עזה מנסים למצוא פתרון ליישובים כרם שלום ונחל עוז. שנצורים זה היום השלישי. הפתרון המסתמן הוא שבשעות הערב ייפתחו הכבישים לזמן קצר והתושבים יוכלו לצאת לסוף השבוע אל מחוץ ליישוב. מירב כהן, תושבת העוטף, שוחחה מוקדם יותר עם ג'קי חוגי וטענה לא ייתכן שלא נקבעו לטובתנו פיצויים, ההפסדים עצומים. למה עדיין לא יצאה אמירה לגבי הפיצויים? כשיש הכרזה של מצב מיוחד בעורף הזה, יש פיצויים. כשיש מלחמה, או איך שאוהבים לקרוא לזה מבצע או סבב, יש פיצויים. בעצם פה לא קורה שום דבר, וההפסדים פה הם עצומים. מטען חבלה הושלך לפנות בוקר לעבר ביתו של שוטר מהיחידה המרכזית של משטרת מחוז הצפון. אין נפגעים, אך נגרם נזק רב. הרקע לאירוע החריג נחקר כעת. כתבנו בצפון, הדר גיציס, מוסר שהוטל צו איסור פרסום על כל פרטי החקירה. בית משפט השלום בעכו העריך בחמישה ימים את מעצרן של שתי מטפלות שעבדו בפעוטון ביישוב צורית. השתיים תושבות הכפר הבדואי ואדי סלאמה שליד כרמיאל חשודות בהתעללות במספר פעוטות בתקופה האחרונה. כתבנו קובי מנטל מוסר שכמה מהורי הפעוטות התפרצו בצעקות לעבר המטפלות במהלך הדיון. ימ"ר תל אביב חשפה ארגון פשיעה משפחתי בגוש דן והמרכז שהקים בנק הלוואות בריבית והפעיל מסכת טרור הלווים תוך הלבנת עשרות מיליוני שקלים. מדווחת כתבתנו אנה פינס. חקירת הפרשה שזכתה לכינוי מכה אפורה נמשכה למעלה משנה ובמהלכה נחשף ארגון פשיעה היררכי בראשות שמואל כחלון, עבריין ידוע מחולון ושני בניו. על פי החשד המשפחה ניהלה בנק הלוואות בשוק האפור וסחטה באיומים למעלה מ-200 אזרחים שהת... 
התקשו לשלם את הריביות, בין היתר על ידי ירי לעבר בתים, יידוי רימוני הלם, שיסוי כלבי תקיפה והצתות. על פי החשד, הארגון הלבין הון והעלים מס בסך של כ-30 מיליון שקלים, ובימים הקרובים יוגש כתב אישום נגד 13 מהמעורבים. בארצות הברית מגיבים על המבצע הצבאי הנרחב של צבא סין שנפתח ברקע מתיחות השיא בינה לבין טיוואן ולאחר ביקור יושבת ראש בית הנבחרים של ארצות הברית ננסי פלוסי באי ובמקביל בטייפי קוראים למנהיגים נוספים לגנות את התרגילים בגבול מדווחת כתבת חדשות החוץ, שחר קנוטובסקי. שר החוץ של ארצות הברית, אנטוני בלינקן, גינה הבוקר את ירי הטילים הסיניים אל חופי טיוואן. לדבריו, ארצו מתנגדת לכל ניסיון חד צדדי ואלים לשנות את מעמד האי, והמדיניות האמריקנית בנוגע לסכסוך לא השתנתה גם כעת. בתוך כך, במשרד החוץ של טיוואן, קוראים כי סין מנסה לחקות את צפון קוריאה בירי הסמוך לחופים, ומפצירים בקהילה הבינלאומית לגנות במשותף את האיום הסיני אל טייפיי, מזג האוויר חם מהרגיל לעונה, ולידיעת נוסעי הרכבת הנסיעה בין תחנות רחובות ואשדוד בשני הכיוונים, לא תתאפשר מיום ראשון, 14 באוגוסט, ועד ליום חמישי. תחנת יבנה מרכז תיסגר גם כן. כתבתנו לענייני תחבורה הילי קרן, מוסרת שהשיבושים נגרמים בעקבות עבודות החשמול באזור המסילה. אלה החדשות. J.M. in the A.M. It's our news from Israel, of course, with Galit Sal. Well, Rabbi Beryl Wine is the uh, centerpiece of our spoken word format here at J.M. in the A.M. And uh, we've got a... Uh, we've got a... Um, lecture by Rabbi Wine from his Essential Classics series about Mesilas Yesharim, and that's how we're going to begin the 7 o'clock hour here on a Thursday at J.M. in the A.M. Reminder tomorrow... Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents. been a uh, couple of weeks since we've spoken to him. He'll join us for a weekly update tomorrow at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time as we get set for Shabbos Chazon. Tisha B'Av is Shabbos. We'll observe it on Sunday. And uh, Monday we'll be back in our regular format here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine, the topic is Mesilas Yesharim, and you're listening to JM in the AM. All right. Uh, we are accustomed in the Jewish world uh, that people uh, make the difference, and that certainly is true. But also, uh, as I hope this series will illustrate, there are books that make a difference as well. And uh, books have a, a cumulative effect. A person, uh, under all circumstances, has a limited lifespan. And because of that, his generation, maybe even the next generation, can benefit from that person. But uh, 100 years later, 200 years later, 300 years later, uh, no one remembers the person. And therefore, uh, the person's influence, to a certain extent, is diffused. It's mitigated. However, books are pretty much eternal, uh, so that even after a few hundred years, uh, the book itself is still here, and its influence is still present, and can be considered uh, alive, so to speak, because of its uh, value and currency. Uh, the two main books that we know in the Jewish world are naturally the Bible, the Tanakh, and the Talmud. 
Those two books are the basis of uh, Judaism as we know it. But these are other books uh, of a different nature which uh, have a profound influence on the Jewish world. Tonight's uh, book, uh, the one I'm going to discuss tonight, is the Mesilat Yisharim, uh, the book that was written by Ramosha Chaim Litzato, uh, published uh, close to 300 years ago. Uh, Ramosha Chaim Litzato, just a, uh, there's a whole uh, biography of him that I once spoke about, but uh, it, uh, he lived a very controversial and short life, a very tragic life. Uh, he was uh, a Kabbalist, at a time when uh, there was great persecution of Kabbalists because of the Shabsite Tzvi disaster. Uh, he was misunderstood. Uh, he was placed into Cherem, first in Italy, later in France. He was driven into uh, Holland, where he was a lens grinder. And uh, then he was forced to leave Holland because his uh, enemies pursued him. Jewish people are a tough people. We wouldn't be here if we weren't, but on the other hand, it's not easy to be with the Jewish people, especially if you're a different type of person. And he was a different type of person. He did not have a beard. He uh, wrote plays. Uh, he, uh, he was very, very spiritual. And uh, he came, therefore, he uh, migrated to the land of Israel, came to the city of uh, Tzfat and later Tiberias. And then the cholera epidemic uh, that broke out, he and his entire family died. And he was uh, about 42 years old when that happened. So uh, we wouldn't know anything about him because in his generation he was not uh, venerated. You know, the strange thing about history is that it's uh, it lowers people and it raises people so that uh, you have to wait a while for the verdict to come in. And many people who in their lifetime were considered to be uh, outstanding, great, influential in the run of history, are lowered. And many people who in their lifetime uh, suffered the indignities and were not very well respected in the run of history are raised. He is the example of someone who was, so to speak, rehabilitated uh, and the rehabilitation begins with the Gon of Vilna and it culminates in the Musser movement of the 18, middle 1800s, late 1800s in Lithuania and the Lithuanian yeshivot. After he was rehabilitated, so to speak, so then he became popular. So not only this book, which is the main book, but his other works as well, which are even more controversial, are today studied universally. And uh, I would hazard to say that most of the people who read it or study it 
or who teach it, they're unaware of the fact that it's a controversial work. So uh, we can say, uh, heaven voted for him. And uh, heaven usually has the last vote in all of these things. Now the book, the Mesilat Yeshorim, the Gon of Vilna said, in the first ten chapters he said, there's not an extra word. The book is a, a marvelous work of conciseness. And we can also say that the Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Litzato, to a certain extent, is the father of modern Hebrew. He does not write rabbinic Hebrew. The Hebrew that he writes is pure. It's a throwback almost to Maimonides in the Mishnah Torah or to the Mishnah itself. That type of Hebrew. But again, uh, the structure of the Hebrew and the structure of the sentence uh, makes it uh, a harbinger, a forerunner of modern Hebrew uh, as we uh, know it today. So they're, just the language itself uh, is itself an, a major thing in the book. I want to share with you his introduction to the book because the introduction uh, is a classic. Uh, in the yeshivas, they used to say, uh, my Rebbe used to say, well, he said, if you don't want to study the book, at least study the introduction. Because the introduction says it all. And here I'm reading to you a, a translation by Yosef uh, uh, Liebler. There are many translations into almost every language in the world. It's one of the most translated books uh, of all of the Jewish books in the world. It's been translated into French, into Spanish, to Russian. And uh, here is the English version of it. The author says, I have written this book not to teach people what they do not know, but rather to remind them of what they already know and clearly understand. And uh, that's the thrust of the book. The thrust of the book is that I'm going to tell you everything that you yourself know. But for some reason, because of your uh, selective memory, uh, because of the fact that uh, it's inconvenient to remember these things, uh, so you put it out of your mind. So I'm here to remind you. For within most of my words you will find general rules of life that most people know with certainty. However, the degree that these rules are well known and are true self-evident, to that degree are they routinely overlooked or people choose to forget about them altogether. You know, so we know, you know, we're not supposed to holler at our wives, right? Or we know that, uh, you know, you're not supposed to uh, shortchange somebody. Or uh, a million things that we know. But somehow when it comes to doing these things, we're not in, the con in control of ourselves. So this is a book about self-control, about self-discipline. And really it's a book about being a good human being. Therefore, the benefit to be obtained from this book cannot be derived from a single reading, but it can be derived from a single lecture. <laughs> For it is possible that after just one reading, the reader will find that he has learned little that he didn't know before. 
So then what does he need the book for? Rather, its benefit is a function of continuous review. In this manner, one is reminded of those things which by nature people are prone to forget. And he will take to heart the duties that he prefers to overlook. His famous example, really the classic example, he says, uh, you can imagine yourself in a maze. Now, uh, one of the uh, uh, sports of kings in the medieval and even later times was to construct a maze. A maze is, uh, you know... uh, a hundred different paths, you come into the maze and then you lose your way and how do you find your way out? Uh, If you go to Hampton Court Palace of Henry VIII, there's a maze there that uh, I got lost in. There, at least at four o'clock, they send somebody to fetch you. (laughs) But uh, a maze was used many times as a... uh, a means of execution of people. They would take the prisoner and let him go in the maze, and uh, he got lost in it. He starved to death. He, uh, he died of thirst. They never came to fetch him. So he says, this world is a maze. I think that's where the world, word amazing comes from. It's the same word. It's, uh, we're all caught in a maze. And every day we make decisions. Take this path, take this path. The end of the maze is naturally our judgment, uh, what heaven thinks of us. How did we get out of the maze? Or did we get lost in the maze? He says the only way to attack a maze and that you know, I also saw this in the palace in Copenhagen in Denmark. So there they have a tower by the maze. And you climb the tower, you're able to see how to get out, right? If you, because you have this overview and you see which are the paths that will lead you out of the maze. So he says here, this book is the tower to the maze. That's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to instruct you how to get out of this maze of life that we are all involved in and how to find our way. Now, where do we want to find our way to? So here he says there's an amazing brysa. There's an amazing piece in the Talmud, in the Meseches Avodah Zorah, written by Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer. Now, Pinchas ben Yoyer is one of the resident holy men of the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that Pinchas ben Yoyer was such a righteous person that even his donkey would not eat straw uh, that did not, uh, that the tithe, that the truma and the maestras were not taken from it. He had a donkey that only ate badats. It knew exactly what it was. So the Gemara always says, Ma behemton shel tzaddikim. You can see that even the dumb animals of the righteous are endowed with an intuition as to what is right and what is wrong. 
and don't uh, make mistakes, so the righteous certainly we have to consider them in that vein. So Rav Pinchas ben Yoyer is buried uh, in the new cemetery in Malot, at the, uh, not in Tzvat, uh, at the bottom. The old cemetery is on top, and he's buried at the bottom. Next to him are buried the 11 girls that were killed in Malot by the Arab terrorists about 20 years ago, not more. And there are many customs regarding the grave of Repinchas ben Yoyer. It's a very visited grave. So Repinchas ben Yoyer, who does not appear in the Talmud in very many instances, there's very little halacha that's quoted from him in the Talmud. But he said this b'risa, very interesting b'risa. He describes the steps that lead a person to holiness. That's the b'risa. You want to be kadosh, you want to be holy, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And you cannot just get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to be holy. Like you can't get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm a brain surgeon. Or today I'm going to run the marathon. In order to do any of that, you need training. You need experience. You have to be able to do it. I had the people in my shul in Muncie that ran the New York marathon every year, but they would run 60 miles every week. So if you run 60 miles every week, so then you got a chance to run the 26 miles of the marathon. But if you get up in the morning and you say, today I'm going to run the marathon, right, then you're, you resemble me, you're not going to make it. It just is not going to happen. So Pepimchus ben Yoyer says the same thing is true about holiness. A Jew wants to be holy, I'm going to tell you how. And here it is. The first thing is Torah. That's the starting point. Knowledge of Torah. Torah mivia lidei zehirus. Torah brings one to being careful, to being vigilant. Leads one to being, uh, uh, not to take unnecessary risks in life. Zehirus mivia lidei zrizus. Then vigilance brings one to zrizus, to enthusiasm, to alacrity, to industry, to work at it. Then zrizus mevialide nikias. That brings a person to cleanliness. He means here spiritual cleanliness, though he talks about physical cleanliness as well. Then nikias mevialide precious. Cleanliness can bring a person to abstain from certain things in life that are not good for him. Precious may veal it a tahara. Then that abstinence can bring one to purity. Tahara may veal it a chesidus. Then one comes to the level of piety. Chesidus may veal it a anova. Piety brings a person to humility. Humility brings a person to fear of sin. Fear of sin brings a person to holiness. Holiness brings one to Ruach HaKodesh, the divine inspiration. So that's 
the Brisa Repinchas Ben Yoyer. The book takes every one of those attributes, every one of those concepts, and defines them for us. So there are three sections in every one. First is a definition. Secondly is how do we do it in practice? The third thing is what brings us to aspire and to want to have those attributes. So I'm not going to go through all of uh, this uh, book, all of these things, but there are selected parts that are just so uh, brilliant in the language, etc., cetera, uh, that uh, everyone should, uh, as he says, uh, assimilate it within one's own psyche and within one's own soul and repeat it over and over again because it will be a step up the ladder. It will get us up the tower that will be able to us to see how to get out of the maze. This, by the way, was in the, in the, was the primer of the Musser movement. Uh, if you saw Salanter and the Musser movement, and especially how it was in the yeshivas, I remember when I was in the yeshiva yet, uh, we devoted uh, 15, 20 minutes every day to the study of this book. And uh, by the, the, uh, the Bali Musser held that this is the book that more than any other work defines what it is to be a good Jew. Uh, when I was the head of the yeshiva in Muncie, uh, I would teach this book 15 minutes a day to uh, about 100 unwilling students. But over the years, I have received many, many comments. Rebbe, I remember what you said. I remember this. I remember that. Because uh, life, uh, life when you're 15 is different uh, when you're 50. And uh, this book is good at 15, but it's great at 50. Because then it, it gives you this picture of how to get over what the purpose of life is. So let's just talk about a few things. He says, God created the world with Midas Hadin, as we know, the measure of justice, and also Midas Arachamim. It's based on the famous Rashi in the beginning of Chumash Breshis, that God had said, Breshis Boro Elokim. Elokim is the name of God that represents justice. Ro'o she'ino olom miskayim he saw that if this is a world that everybody has to be measured in a just manner, in a legal manner, the world cannot exist. Human beings are too frail. They're too prone to, for error. It's interesting. God didn't remake the human beings. He remade the system. Because he could have made a stronger human being, right? He could have created everybody to be the Chafetz Chaim. He didn't do that. So Omad, the Rabbi Shalom, therefore Kaviyochu, arranged that it's Midas Arachamim. And that's what we say, Hashem, Hashem. The Yud Vovke, the four-letter name of God, that's representative of God's mercy. It's not representative of justice. So the question arises, 
how does how did the two get along? So to ask that question of God is really not a problem because we don't understand God anyway, so he somehow makes it work. But we are supposed to emulate God. Imitatio Dei. We are the imitation of the Creator. In being the imitation of the Creator, we also have to subscribe to justice and to mercy. We have it in this week's Sedra by Avram Avinu. Lasos Zdoko Mishpat. To do Zdoko, righteousness, goodness, and Mishpat, justice. Well, how do you combine, right? If I'm doing Zdoko, it's not Mishpat, right? If I'm doing Mishpat, it's not Zdoko. God expects us somehow to be able to combine it. So he asks the question. You might ask how the attribute of compassion enters into this world. Since in all cases justice is so precise, we believe that the Rabboni Sholem is medagdik, is exact, and that no act goes unrewarded or unpunished, and that the Lord is uh, the supreme accountant, so to speak, and doesn't cook the books, doesn't overlook anything. So in that world of justice, where is mercy? The answer is that the attribute of compassion is what undoubtedly holds up the world without which the world cannot exist at all. So therefore, we cannot have a world built only on justice. And a human being cannot have a life built only on justice. Because if he does, he cannot stay married, he cannot be a parent, he cannot be in business, he cannot be a teacher, he cannot live in a community, cannot be a member of society because there's no room for it. If it has to be pure justice. So he says, nonetheless, this does not rule out the function of the attribute of justice. For according to the letter of the law, and here he introduces a great idea in Judaism, He says the sinner should be punished immediately, subsequent to a sinful act without any delay. The example he gives is a person, God forbid, puts his hand into a fire, right? So he's burned immediately. We'll get back to uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine and the topic of Mesilas Yesharim in just a a couple of minutes here at JM in the AM. It is a Thursday morning broadcast. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. The 4th of August, the 7th day in the month of Menachem Av, as we get closer and closer to the observance of Tisha B'Av, which is this coming Sunday on the 10th of Av. Feel free to comment on the app. Go to the NSN, Nahum Single Network app for Android and iPhone, and comment away tomorrow morning. Malcolm Honeline expected for our weekly update in the 7 o'clock hour. 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. Make sure to be tuned in. Yossi Zweig with a Thursday live lunch exclusive for us. Three weeks format style coming at you starting at 11 a.m. today right here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We learn 
Ele hadvarim asher diver Moshel ko Yisrael. These are the words that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to all of Klal Yisrael. We think that from this particular pasuk, we learn all the different places where Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to Klal Yisrael. But Rashi says, this really can't be so, because some of the places that are enumerated in this pasuk do not really exist. Rashi tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was actually being mochiach, reproaching Klal Yisrael. However, in order not to embarrass them, he hid the Averis by alluding to them in the names of the various places. Rabbi Nechemia says in Sanhedrin, that Klal Yisrael was not responsible for each other until after Bnei Yisrael entered in to the Holy Land. Before that, they were not responsible for each other's Averos. As we know, it says, Kol Yisrael, Arevim Zebozeh, that each of us are responsible for each other. The Zerashimshan cites the Medrash that tells us that some of the people were merely satisfied that there was an Egel Azahov, a golden calf. Some of the people actually served the Egel Azahov, and some of the people hugged and kissed it. We see that there were different levels of doing the Avera. There were different levels of sinning. Not everyone was on the same level. Because of that, we see that since they weren't responsible for each other at that time, they were not equal, and neither was the punishment that was distributed. For that reason, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't strongly delineate those sins that Klai Yisrael had done. In this way, he was saying that not everyone was to be held guilty for what happened in the Midbar. There were those who only transgressed lightly. The great Chavetz Chaim, Zecher Tzadik Levrocha, once said that after 120 years, a person comes before the Basin Shomailo, the heavenly court, and the court's going to ask him, tell me, why were you Mechavel Shabbos? Why did you desecrate the Shabbos? The individual's going to be shocked. He'll answer, I never desecrated the Shabbos. I was never Mechavel Shabbos. In fact, I was very careful every day to learn Hilchus Shabbos, the laws of the Shabbos. The basin will answer, That might be true, but there were individuals in your community, individuals that were Mechavel Shabbos, you could have reached out to them. You could have prevented the Chilul Shabbos. You could have brought them closer to Hashem. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. Jam in the AM. My thanks, Rabbi Goldwasser, of course. All right, Beryl Wine's lectures continue uh, as the centerpiece of our spoken word format here at Jam in the AM during our nine days format. Uh, Mesilas Yesharim, the great essential classic, is the uh, book that Rabbi Wine is talking about in this lecture. As we continue, information about his lectures, Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. You're listening to a Thursday morning edition of JMNAM, nine days format, back into our regular format on Monday. Tomorrow, Malcolm Honeline expected. Weekly update at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time. He's Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. And plenty more 
uh, including Yossi Zweig's Thursday Live Lunch, three weeks format style, live today exclusively on the Nahum Single Network, beginning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. It's JM in the AM, or I barrel wine on Vasilis Yasharim. Here we go. He says, God created the world with Midas Hadin, as we know, the measure of justice, and also Midas Arachamim. It's based on the famous Rashi in the beginning of Chumash Breshis, that God it says, Breshis Boro Elokim. Elokim is the name of God that represents justice. Ro'o she'ino olam miskayim bazeh. He saw that if this is a world that everybody has to be measured in a just manner, in a legal manner, the world cannot exist. Human beings are too frail. They're too prone to, for error. It's interesting. God didn't remake the human beings. He remade the system. Because he could have made a stronger human being, right? He could have created everybody to be the Chafetz Chaim. He didn't do that. So, Omad, the Rabboni Shalom, therefore, Kaviyochu, arranged that it's Midas Arachamim. And that's what we say, Hashem, Hashem. The Yud Vovke, the four-letter name of God, that's representative of God's mercy. It's not representative of justice. So the question arises, how, does, how did the two get along? So to ask that question of God is really not a problem because we don't understand God anyway, so he somehow makes it work. But we are supposed to emulate God. Imitatio Dei. We are the imitation of the Creator. In being the imitation of the Creator, we also have to subscribe to justice and to mercy. We have it in this week's Sedra by Avram Avinu. Lasos Tzdoko Mishpat. To do Tzdoko, righteousness, goodness, and Mishpat, justice. Well, how do you combine, right? If I'm doing Zdoka, it's not Mishpat, right? If I'm doing Mishpat, it's not Zdoka. God expects us somehow to be able to combine it. So he asked the question. You might ask how the attribute of compassion enters into this world, since in all cases justice is so precise we believe that the Rabboni Sholem is medagdik, is exact, and that no act goes unrewarded or unpunished, and that the Lord is uh, the supreme accountant, so to speak, and doesn't cook the books, doesn't overlook anything. So in that world of justice, where is mercy? The answer is that the attribute of compassion is what undoubtedly holds up the world, without which the world cannot exist at all. So therefore, we cannot have a world built only on justice. And a human being cannot have a life built only on justice. Because if he does, he cannot stay married, he cannot be a parent, he cannot be in business, he cannot be a teacher, he cannot live in a community, he cannot be a member of society, 
because there's no room for it. If it has to be pure justice. So he says, nonetheless, this does not rule out the function of the attribute of justice. For according to the letter of the law, and here he introduces a great idea in Judaism, he says the sinner should be punished immediately, subsequent to a sinful act without any delay. The example he gives is a person, God forbid, puts his hand into a fire, right? So he's burned immediately. In the physical world, we see that immediately, right? He, he, he uses a knife that's too sharp and it slips, so he cuts himself immediately. So if we had a system of the world that was pure justice, so if a person commits a sin, so a bolt of lightning should strike him from heaven, which is what we would like to see. Somebody said to me today, you know, there should be a rainstorm on, the, on Friday, right? There should be, you know, 16 inches of rain should fall with hail. I said, you're foolish. God's not going to do that. It'll be a beautiful day. It'll be fine. Because it doesn't work that way. If it worked that way, then none of us would have any excuse whatsoever. We wouldn't have freedom of choice. What gives us freedom of choice is that it does not happen that way. It's not instantaneous justice. Furthermore, he said the punishment should be meted out with anger since it is directed against one who has rebelled against the, de- the words of the Creator. And there should be no way whatsoever to atone for sin. How can a person rectify what he has ruined once he has committed the act? Right? You broke... Uh, somebody uh, once... We, we had a... Uh, a nice ceramic lamp in our house in Miami Beach that my wife was proud of. And uh, when we moved from Chicago to Miami Beach, we didn't even give the lamp to the movers. It came in the car with us because uh, somehow there was a sentimental attachment to the lamp. And then uh, a guest came to the house, tripped over the wire, and smashed the lamp. which was a good lesson for all of us. And my wife uh, smiled sweetly and said, oh, that's, you know, that's an that lamp was a cheap lamp anyway. So, but you can't put that lamp back together again. All right? That's never going to happen. So it should be that way with sin also, he says. If we sin to God, we've broken the lamp. So the lamp can't be put back together again. Can anyone purge from reality the act that has been done? Therefore, he says, that's why you, that's what the act of compassion does. That's what it means, midas arachamim. Beautiful idea, explanation of how Judaism views things. The attribute of compassion yields the opposite of what is mentioned above. Time is extended to the sinner. We say it on Yom Kippur, in Nile, Ad Yom Moso, Techakelo, 
to the last breath, God has patience. The possibility of repenting will be granted to the sinner. And that the act of repentance is equivalent to the uprooting of the deed itself. It's like you never, it's like the lamp comes whole again. It was all put together. That's what Midas Arachami means. So again, the three points. Midas Arachami, there's no instantaneous punishment. Midas Arachami is that there is the chance for the person to repent. And the third thing is that the repentance restores what was destroyed. What a concept. Gives a human being hope. Otherwise, we would all be terribly despondent. Tomorrow we'll do better. I can fix what went wrong. This means that since the penitent recognizes a sin, admits guilt, ponders the wrongdoing, repents and totally regrets all that was done from the outset, this regret is so complete that he wishes that the deed never had been done and he is filled with anguish, then the uprooting of the deed will occur and it will be an act, an effective act of atonement for him. So he says this is one step on the ladder. This is a person has the ability, but only if one is able to admit that the lamp is broken. We have the ability to look at the broken lamp and say it's whole. Or to say I didn't do it. Or to say what difference does it make? So the basis, he says, is this self-recognition of what went wrong so that we can improve ourselves. And that the basis of God's relationship with us is this mita sarachamim, this mita of compassion. He then says, and that's why the Bali Musar were so uh, enamored of the Sefer, is because everything he says about our relationship between man and God is also our relationship between humans and humans. So you have to be able to forgive others also. You have to be able to, uh, to not deal in anger with others. You have to be able to be patient with others. All of which goes against our nature. And therefore he says, Midas Arachamim, that's why, just a brilliant idea, that's why the world was created first in Midas Adin. Because that's our nature. Our nature is, this guy cut me off in the lane. At the next stoplight, I'm going to cut him off in the lane. I'll show him. That's why we have all the wonderful things in the traffic here in Israel. Because everybody is, you know, miata, right? Who are you? You cut me, I'll cut you. And sometimes you see it on the road that it's frightening. The way people jockey with each other. It becomes a test of will. So first, we are born innately 
selfish. We're born innately with Midas Adin. As the Gemara states, Yikov Adin Sahor. Let the justice split the mountain. I don't care what the consequences are. Which we also see is that people don't care what the consequences are. And therefore, many times people in doing what they think is good for them are doing things that are terribly counterproductive to them. That's true in the political world. It's true in the business world. It's true even in the synagogue world. So therefore, he says, God tempered the world with Midas Arachamim, which came later. Midas Arachamim is something that mitigates the Midas Adin. Well, just as that's the relationship of us with God and the relationship of how God created the world, so too is it the relationship between humans and humans. So I have to be willing not to be angry immediately not to make snap judgments about people. Famous uh, story uh, about, uh, they say it about Reb Chaim Sanzer, the uh, famous Divrei Chaim, who was a very uh, precocious and mischievous child. So when he was uh, uh, six or seven years old, they already arranged a marriage for him which was common amongst the, you know, and then naturally wouldn't be consummated for another 10, 12 years, whatever it was. But, you know, the, so they had the vort, right? They had the, uh, the, the engagement party. So he, he, he walks in, he's six years old, you know, and they dressed him up in the, in the outfit, and, you know, and he walks in and he tells his father, he says, that's my father-in-law. He points at him. So his father said, how do you know? He said, I hate him already. So that's, you know, that's immediate judgment, right? You see somebody the first time, and that's your judgment. But Midas Arachamim says, well, maybe, you know, give him a chance. And if the person changes... So we accept that the person changes. And we don't come and say, but I remember when, which is an iser in the Torah to do. It's an iser to tell somebody, I remember when you sinned. I remember, you know, people come, I remember, you know, the teacher in fifth grade threw you out. You're not allowed to say that. And you're certainly not allowed to say that to a convert. Or you're not allowed to say it to someone who calls himself a baltruva. You're not allowed to say it to anybody. And you have to realize that if the person really changed, then what went on before never happened. Now, that's a big bill. But that's what Midas Arachami means. And that's what the Gemara means when it says, Mahu Rachum Afato Rachum. God is merciful. You also have to be merciful. And we will measure merciful in those terms. So we think merciful is, you know, I, I rock the baby to sleep. Or I give charity to the panhandler. Today, uh, a con woman came to my house. I knew she was a con woman. I gave her money anyway. I told her, you know, I, I'm paying you for the act. 
You did a very good job. I'm going to end here. You know, you entertained me for 10 minutes. So I don't want you to leave empty-handed. And I gave her, and I gave her a good, you know. That's rachum, right? That's a measure of a, you know, you have to be able to do Because I'll pee I should call, I should tie her up and call the police, right? So this is the concept that he discusses here. Now, he says, service of God is not on the outside, it's on the inside. Which was a precept of the Bali Musr, and a precept of, let's say, the Kotzker Chassidim. There was always a precept, right? The Kotzker Chassidim on Tishabov used to put chalk on their lips so that people would think that maybe they ate. But a Bali Musr... You never saw anything from the outside. My father-in-law, blessed memory, always told me he lived with the Chofetz Chaim. He said when he lived with the Chofetz Chaim, he said he was a plain person. You never saw anything. It was all hidden. It was all on the inside. Today we live in a world where it's all on the outside. The Gaon of Vilnius says that at the end of time, at the end, uh, we come closer to the Messianic times, he said it's all chitzonius. It's all on the outside. It's the uniform, it's this, it's all the shtick, that's what it is. But it's really supposed to be all on the inside. He says, you already know, however, that is what is most desirable for the service of the Creator is the yearning of the heart and the pining of the soul within us. David HaMelech said, As a deer cries longingly for brooks of water, my soul yearns for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the eternal, the living God. When will I be judged worthy to come and appear before the eternal? That's an inner feeling. Most of the important things in life are inner feelings. It's not things that are expressed. It's hard to express it. And the love between spouses, the love between parents and children, the love. Yeah. People keep on saying, I love you, then I'm, I'm nervous about it. Because that's not it. One of the uh, travesties that's occurred because of the, the skewed nature of society generally is that there are no internal feelings anymore. It all has to be, you know, everything on the outside. For the person in whom this desire is not sufficiently kindled, it is advisable that he actively arouse himself. This will lead to the result that the desire will sooner or later become part of his nature. For the external physical movement may eventually stimulate the internal one. And it is the internal domain directly that defines his relationship with the Creator. Another idea. He says here, 
There is not a person, no matter what his circumstances, whether he be poor or rich, healthy or sick, who does not perceive daily numerous wonders and acts of benevolence in his situation. A wealthy person or a healthy person is indebted to the Almighty automatically for his good health, for his wealth. A poor person is also indebted, for even in his poverty, he is still sustained by the eternal miraculously or wondrously and has not allowed him to die of hunger. And the same thing, a sick person is strengthened during his relentless sickness and suffering. And the Lord does not allow him to descend immediately to the grave. It is the same thing of a similar nature, which means there is not a single person who should fail to recognize one's indebtedness to the Creator. Here he gives the idea of not being kofui tova, of ingratitude. Ingratitude is the supreme sin in Jewish life. The whole idea of respect to parents, respect to teachers, is based upon the idea of gratitude. Because whatever my father and mother are, they gave me life. Without them, I'm not here. So gratitude is the famous foundation of Jewish life. And that gratitude to people and gratitude to the Creator. So many times, I remember I once asked uh, one of my rabbeim when I was uh, young and clever, why does he, you know, you ask somebody how he feels, he says, Baruch Hashem. What kind of answer is that? Say, you know, I feel good, I don't feel so good today, you know, I got to go to the doctor. What answer is Baruch Hashem? When uh, one of my grandsons was three years old, he said to me, Zadie, he said, do you know what God's first name is? I said, no, what is it? He said, Boruch. Because everybody says Boruch Hashem. So he answered me. He said, the fact that he can answer you is Boruch Hashem. The fact that he's there to answer you, so you have to bless God for that alone. The fact of gratitude. And uh, we see in the Parsha of the week uh, that the Lot uh, is destroyed. Lot is destroyed because of ingratitude. He has no gratitude towards Avraham. Avraham made him a wealthy man. Avraham saved him. Avraham went to war for him. Avraham restored him. He had nothing. Zero. He didn't even, you know, he didn't send him even a card for Hanukkah. Nothing. Zero. The Lord doesn't like ingratitude. Whatever he needs and whatever is essential comes from the Blessed One, Holy One be he, and from no other. And therefore he surely will not be able to afford ignoring the service of the Blessed One because that would be the height of ingratitude. 
That's the same thing with people. So in our world, it's a different society, so I don't want to be misunderstood. But I always mention uh, in, in the, uh, to the young men that I teach, uh, because of the fact that uh, I think it's become more difficult in our time, married life, than it once was, for whatever reason. So the Gemara says that there was a Tana of Yesi who had a wife who was from Rebetzin land. I mean, she was it. She was a shrew. And she even insulted him publicly. The Gemara says that once when he was saying the, uh, teaching the class, the shir and the yeshiva, she burst in and insulted him. So his Talmidim said to him, give her a get. Divorce her. Get rid of her. He said, give her a get. He said, is it not sufficient that she has borne my children and that she takes care of me and that she saves me from sin? So uh, life is built on gratitude. It's not always built on ingratitude. So the idea of service of God is gratitude. Now that's not to say, I don't want to be misunderstood, that's not to say that divorce is not justified at times. But it's only to express a certain outlook, the outlook of gratitude that has to exist between people in a family. Now he talks about money. So he says... The two things that people desire are money and physical pleasure. Those are the two big industries in the world, right? Finance industry. You hear the ads on the radio, right? If you got extra shekel, come for a private interview with me, you know, I'll show you how we make more money, right? So more money has no limit. As I'll say, Misha Yeshlomona wrote to Messiah, and he has 100 ones, 200, there's no end to that. So, and the second thing is physical desires, right? Good time, pleasures, which leads to an immoral world, because there's no limit to a good time either. And the truth of the matter is, it's very hard to have a good time, because. Uh, Unfortunately, all of your problems come with you to have a good time. I used to see it in uh, my synagogue that uh, people, Saturday night, you know, so they went out to have a good time. So they have to drive, it's three and a half hours in the car, back and forth to have the good time. It costs like four or five hundred dollars to have the good time. You come home dead tired, you got to drive the babysitter home to have the good time. By the time you're done, you didn't have such a good time. It's hard to have a good time. Kolo Sheldover, he says. He discusses here all of the, the problems that, uh, that people fall into because of money. Let us summarize. Just as the desire for money is great so too are the obstacles it places before us. A person must probe deeply and with great thoroughness to completely cleanse himself of them. 
And if he purges the desire as well, he may regard himself as having attained a lofty elevation. Now, Judaism does not preach poverty. We are not Christians. We do not preach poverty as a way of life. On the other hand, money has to be put into the proper perspective. And if it is not, it destroys us. I have been witness to so many families destroyed by wealth. And especially if uh, the father dies and uh, the brothers feel that the distribution was not equitable between them, so then there's no limit and the, to the lawyers and the lawsuits and the Dine Torah and the fact that the cousins then don't speak to each other. I know families that it goes down three, four generations. So if the man would have died poor, they would, they, they, everything would be fine. But the problem is that they each had $15 million anyway. Uh, but he left four uh, buildings to one and three buildings to the other, and so that's it, right? Many are able to become pious by very many branches of piety. Here he talks to us, Dugri, right in the pulpit. Yet when it comes to money, they are not able to reach any sphere of perfection. Kashras and Shabbos and everything is perfect. But when it comes to money, you can't, can't deal with, with the temptation. Can't deal with it. And now he talks about physical pleasures. And basically he says in life one has to drive defensively. Don't, don't put yourself in situations with temptation. By applying the rule to the area of promiscuity, the sages therefore prohibited anything that is a form of promiscuity or that resembles it, regardless of the medium involved, whether it be physical contact, sight, speech, hearing, and eventually even thought. And therefore... The Torah prevented, he said, obscenities in speech. The Torah prevented frivolous conversations. If one were to whisper in your ear and tell you what our sages have said about obscene speech was only meant to frighten people away and prevent them from sinning, and that this only pertains to a hot-blooded person whose obscenities arouse him to desire, but that is insignificant regarding someone who merely says them in jest, tell him, you are speaking the words of the evil inclination itself. The verse of the Torah mentions neither idol worship, nor adultery, nor killing, but rather speech. 
flattery, slander, vile language, obscenities, all of these are transgressions of the mouth that relate to speech. And therefore the truth is that our rabbis of blessed memory have said that the uttering of obscenities is literally the promiscuity of speech. And although there is no punishment for these sins, nevertheless they are forbidden in their own right, apart from the role they cause in leading one to transgress. And that's Chofetz Chaim's Svarim. And that's why the books were written in the late 1800s, because the Mesil Yashorim came out a hundred years before. Why didn't somebody write the Shulchan Aruch and Loshan Oroh a hundred years earlier? There were Gedolim that were as great as the Chofetz Chaim in previous generations. But he lit the match. And because he lit the match and it was studied so widely in Lithuania, so people followed up on it. Finally, he says, great idea. Finally, the only one blessed be he loves only those who love Israel and Jews. To the extent that one increases his love for Israel, God will increase his love for that person. It's hard to love Israel. It's hard to love Israel the state. It's hard to love Israel the people. It's hard to love Israel, you know, the person that's sitting next to me. Nevertheless, the measure of how much a human being can love another human being is the measure of God's love for that person. Now, for instance, Christianity is a religion built on love. But uh, that love uh, turns out to be murderous throughout history. What we mean by love here is how you treat others. And I think it's important to understand that in all the turmoil of this week, where uh, unfortunately uh, uh, we are the losers on all fronts. The true shepherds of Israel whom the Holy One, blessed be he, holds dear are those who sacrifice themselves for the people of Israel, beseeching and laboring on behalf of the peace and well-being of their brothers, constantly standing in the breach to pray for the repeal of harsh decrees against them and for the gates of blessing to open wide on their behalf. This can be compared to a father who loves no one more than the person who has shown genuine love towards the father's sons. Human nature attests to this. He says that was the task of the Kohen Godol in the Beit HaMikdash, to physically show his love to the Jewish people. And he said that is the task of all Jews to be able to somehow achieve that level of loving others. 
again, this book uh, is uh, a bestseller, but it's not just a bestseller. It is a book that has influenced generations of Jews, especially Jewish scholars. I mentioned the Musser movement, Lithuanian Jews, but it's today it is all over the Jewish world. There are many more things in the book. I just want to conclude uh, with, uh, so to speak, his final words. And you, my dear reader, I realize that you would recognize, as I do, that in this work I have not come to the end of all of the ideas regarding piety, and that I have not said all that can be said, for there is no end to the matter or limit to one's reflections. But I have said something about each particular component of the brysa of this ladder upon which this work has been based. May this serve as a beginning and a gateway to a broader study of these matters, since their structure has now been revealed to you and their paths have been exposed before your eyes, allowing us to walk securely along them in reference to things of this nature, it has been stated, the learned person will learn and increase his knowledge, and the contemplative person will acquire greater profundity. And one who seeks to be purified will be assisted from heaven, for the eternal will impart wisdom from his mouth, will come knowledge and understanding to that person, to direct each person's path, before the Creator, so that he can safely escape the maze. This concludes... Pretty amazing, huh? Amazing is right. Uh, J.M. and the A.M. on the topic of Mesilas Yesharim, Rabbi Beryl Wine. Uh, we have one more to go with Rabbi Wine today, and that's uh, the topic of the Mishnah Brura, the brilliant work by the Chavetz Chaim. The uh, series is entitled Essential Classics, and it gives us an amazing perspective on history, especially modern Jewish history. Uh, through some of these classic works. Really remarkable. Essential Classics is the name of the series. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of the Mishnah Brewer is coming up next. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And a reminder, Yossi's Wag with a Thursday Live Lunch, part of our incredible Thursday schedule. Uh, we have some great shows and wonderful encores coming up between now and 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And then uh, Yassi's Wag with a live, live lunch, three weeks format, coming up between 11 and 1 Eastern Time. And then a uh, a uh, full um, a full regular Thursday schedule, except uh, the uh, Erev Shabbos show brought to you by the wonderful people at Kedem will return next week, please, God. Tani Gutterman is on tonight with the... Uh, with the uh, Tani Talks Parsha. That's going to be at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And um, tomorrow morning, Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, with our weekly update. That's tomorrow at 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time as we get set to move into our regular format again on Monday morning right after the observance of Tisha B'Av. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of the Mishnah Brura right here at JM in the AM. In this uh, series of lectures, I'm discussing books that uh, really made a great difference in Jewish life and Jewish history. We're always uh, aware that people make a great difference. 
but there are some times that the book, a certain book published at a certain time for a specific reason, also makes a great difference. And today's book, uh, The Mission of Brura, uh, really is a sea change in Jewish life. It has to be seen that way. There was an article uh, in uh, Tradition uh, 10 or 12 years ago by uh, Professor Chaim Soloveitchik. And uh, in that article, he uh, pointed out uh, the change that has happened in the Jewish Orthodox world over the past 50, 80 maybe even 100 years. Orthodoxy changed from being a societal religion, meaning everybody doing what everybody else does. So if all the stores are closed on Shabbat, so my store is also closed on Shabbat. If everybody in town eats kosher, I eat kosher. It's uh, what I call the... Judaism that was a mile wide and an inch deep. And that Judaism did not survive the onslaught of the Haskalah, of secular Zionism, of the left, and it did not survive the onslaught of American assimilation in the United States, and it did not survive here in Israel. Uh, the traditional Jew uh, had uh, non-traditional children and perhaps even anti-traditional grandchildren. Because of that onslaught and because of the fact that the rabbis saw the Jewish world slipping away in front of their eyes, we're talking the 1800s, and we're talking Lithuania, Poland, the Ukraine. We're not talking about, uh, you know, Kansas City. So because of that, the entire focus of orthodoxy changed, and it became a book-oriented religion. And the book became the major guiding influence in Orthodox Jewish life. It has to be said that uh, 90%, maybe more, of Eastern European Jewry were not book Jews. They were, uh, the men were uh, literate, the women were illiterate, and uh, even the men, uh, very few were Talmudic scholars, a uh, small percentage of the Jewish world. And so therefore, uh, because of this, this is a completely different orientation. And that's the orientation that we are in today, where again, how we behave and what rules we follow and what halachot we observe are influenced mainly by books and not by people. In fact, uh, many times the same people who write the books don't follow what the book says in certain instances, 
because of the fact that they, uh, so to speak, are more flexible than the book, but they'll never put it in writing. They'll tell you what to do orally, but they'll never put it in writing, which puts, uh, uh, which puts the matter at risk, as you can well imagine. The Gaon of Vilna uh, was the, really the prime person that understood the changing Jewish world. The Gaon saw what Haskalah would do. He was almost a prophet in that area. He said that the first Maskilim are wonderful, observant Jews, and they just want Hebrew and the Tanakh and a needed reforms in the uh, Jewish educational system, all of which were good. But the second generation uh, will uh, undermine the authority of the rabbis. The third generation will deny religion. The fourth generation will bring about assimilation, which was prophetic. They tell a great story about the uh, in Vilna in the 1740s, the leading Moscow in town, the head of the Haskalah, who was a very, very uh, scholarly uh, person, so he passed away. And he passed away, so the Hever uh, Kedisha said to the Magid in town that he has to come and say the Hesped. He has to eulogize uh, the person who died. The Magid was not anxious to do that. But he was under great pressure from uh, the people who ran the Hevra Kedisha, and he really had to listen to them. So he got up at the Hesped, and he said, this is the first Moscow that I have to eulogize. So I really don't know what to say. But if a lot of other Moscowim will die, I'll get the hang of what to say. <laughs> well, so... Uh, the Haskalah, uh, in the middle of the 1700s, which was uh, a carryover from German Haskalah, which later became German reform, uh, penetrated deep into Lithuanian Jewish society. And because of that, therefore, uh, this different viewpoint of how to uh, keep Jews Jewish, so to speak, uh, became the norm. So the uh, Gaon of Vilna had a uh, disciple, uh, Rabbi Avram Danzig, who, by the way, is buried next to the Gaon. Uh, the, uh, the Gaon's remains were at the, the, the Russian communists, when they controlled Lithuania, in their great sensitivity and uh, progressiveness, so they converted the Jewish cemetery into a soccer field and leveled it so that what the Nazis didn't do, they completed. Uh, Rabbi Teitz, Zichrona Levrocha of Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, through uh, his uh, political influence through senators in the United States, etc., received permission from the Russian government to exhume six bodies and rebury them. So one was the Gon. And one was Rabbi Avram Danzig, 
And then there was the Ger Tzedek, there was a famous uh, count, a Lithuanian nobleman who converted to Judaism and was burned at the stake by the uh, Catholic Church. Uh, so uh, the count, from his grave, there grew an enormous oak tree, which was the symbol of the Jewish cemetery in Vilna. And naturally, when the, the communists took down the oak tree, but the, the Gertzedek is also buried, there are six graves in a row there in the Vilna Cemetery that Rabbi Teitz was able to get the government to exhume. He told me personally that, the, that when they took the Gon, the Gon's body was still whole. So in any event, Rabbi Avram Danzig takes the Shulchan Aruch because the, the Shulchan Aruch is the work of Rabbi Yosef Karo in the 1540s. It was modified by Ramoshi Israelish. It was made Ashkenazic friendly by him. And the, the Shulchan Aruch became the basic book of the Jewish people regarding halacha. But the Shulchan Aruch piled upon itself. Jews love to do this. It piled upon the Rabbi Yosef Kara said, and the Rambam said, for instance, you have my book, you don't need any other books. So the Lord heard what he said, and there are thousands of books about the Rambam's book that you don't need any other books for. So the Shulchan Aruch, the same thing. Uh, 300 years after the Rambam, 340 years after the Rambam, so Rabbi Yosef Karo says, I'm going to make the Shulchan Aruch. If you have my book, every Jew will know what to do. Every halacha is decided. Every opinion is quoted. Perfect. Well, so it accumulated in the next 300 years. Uh, commentary upon commentary, super commentary upon super commentary, until the book became only the uh, province of scholars. The ordinary Jew couldn't deal with it because it's so heavy with uh, scholarship and with commentary, and also uh, you no longer had a clear definition of what the halacha would be because you had so many great uh, scholars over the centuries uh, who either agreed or disagreed or had a different opinion. And then he also had new situations which arose that the Shulchan Aruch didn't deal with. Simply technology changed, uh, lifestyle changed, uh, all of these things. So Rabbi Avram Danzig, in writing the Chaye Odom, that was his, the name of his book, uh, made an abridgment of the Shulchan Aruch. And he just said, do this, do this, do this, do this. Cut out all of the commentaries. Well, that didn't last too long, because then people started to make commentaries on the Chayodah. And uh, because of that, uh, there arose in Lithuania, this is, we're going to get to the topic, don't get nervous. We're going to, uh, there arose in Lithuania, uh, a Jew uh, rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yechiel Michal Epstein, who was the Rav of Navaradok. Navaradok was a peanut of a town, but it uh, later became famous because it had a famous Musar Yeshiva, the Navaradok Yeshiva there. 
but the town was very small. But the town always had great rabbis. Rabbi Chonan Specter, who later became the Rovan Kovna, was first the Rovan of Aradok. It was a, was a very famous town, even though it was a small town. Why did the rabbis like to be a rov in a small town? Because they didn't want the pressures of being a rabbi in uh, Beit Knesset Hanasi. They don't want to be in a big city. They don't want, you know, uh, that hundreds of people should have access to them. They want to sit and learn. Or they want to write. So therefore, they looked for quiet places. They looked for small towns. The fact that none of those towns could afford them a living made no difference. My father-in-law, blessed memory, he was a rov in a town that had 41 families. 41 Jewish families, 19 non-Jewish families. That was the town. And his wages were they gave him a goat. And my mother-in-law would milk the goat every morning, right? They had milk. And uh, she would sell the salt and the candles. And that was the, you know, that was the salary. But it was a wonderful place. It was small, it was quiet, and he could learn and he could do whatever he wants. And then he ends up in Detroit where he doesn't have a minute to himself. So in the Varadok, Rabbi Yechiel Michal Alevi Epstein writes a monumental work. You know the Shulchan Aruch. This is the Aruch HaShulchan. In which... He decides everything. And he wrote it on all four sections of the Shulchan Aruch. It's a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece of style, of language, of content, and of decision. He took things on his shoulder. He said, you know, it's allowed, not allowed. He did it. The rabbis in Lithuania went up the wall with the Aruch HaShulchan. That was the book that they used. They didn't use uh, for the Mishnah Brewer that we're going to discuss. They used the Orach HaShulchan because he was a practical rabbi. And therefore, it's written differently, as we'll see, than the Mishnah Brewer, where the Chofetz Chaim never held any public position in the Jewish world. He was not a rabbi. He was not a Rosh Yeshiva. He was the Chofetz Chaim. He was a holy man. But that's a different, a different background and a different overview uh, than being the rabbi in the town. So the Orach HaShulchan uh, swept the boards. However, uh, the, the Orach HaShulchan came out and began in the 1860s already to come out. It came out always volume by volume. And the, the rabbis themselves traveled to sell the book. They didn't have, like, bookstores or agents. So even though the, the rabbinic world was aware of it, the Jewish world was not much aware of it. The Chofetz Chaim, Rabbi Soil Meir Akohen Kagan, who lived a very long life, almost a century, and was active almost till, till his last day. Uh, the Chofetz Chaim, in his youth, and when he, in his late 20s, 30s, wrote his famous work, Chofetz Chaim. Chofetz Chaim was the Shulchan Aruch on the laws of Loshan Horah, of slander, of uh, bad speech, of gossip. 
he made a whole Shulchan Aruch on that one subject, something which had never been done before. And he put it out anonymously, without a name. Didn't say who the author was. But after a while, people figured out who it was. And his reputation as a holy person grew. So he wrote other interesting books. He wrote, uh, he's the first one that wrote a book, How the Jewish Immigrant in America Should Behave in Order to Remain Jewish. It's called Nitche Yisrael. In it he says, if you have to work on Shabbos, don't write. Don't handle the money. Minimize the Chilu Shabbos. It's interesting that no American rabbi wrote a book like that. And he wrote uh, a book, Avas Chesed, uh, The Obligation of Jews to Be Good, to Be Sensitive to Others. He wrote a book, Shemir Haloshon. And he was already world famous. He was a friend of Reb Chaim Ezer Grajensky. Reb Chaim Ezer Grajensky was the chief uh, leader of the Jewish Orthodox world in Lithuania. He lived in Vilna. And so he was a Talmudic genius. So in the yeshiva world, they said that Reb Chaim Ezer was a tzaddik. But his genius blinded everybody to his tzitkis, to his righteousness. And the Chofetz Chaim was a tzaddik, but his tzitkis was so great that it blinded everyone to his scholarship. So that they held him to be a holy man. Now, he, uh, seeing the situation, sensing the situation in Lithuania, and he sees that the... Uh, Basic hope uh, lies in the yeshivot. The yeshivot would produce leaders who in turn would be able to influence the public. It would be a, uh, a, a matter that, uh, cumulative matter, and that only the yeshivot would save the Jewish world. And therefore he made a yeshiva in Raden, in his own hometown, but he was not the Rosh Yeshiva. He had uh, a son-in-law who was a tremendous genius. Reb Tzvi Levinson, Hirsch Levinson, who was well-known. He was a tremendous genius. And he was like six foot four, and the Chavetz Chaim was like four foot six. My father-in-law said when they walked together, you know, like the, the non-Jews would line up to see the sight. And... Uh, he, together with his son-in-law, had this idea that they were going to make a definitive halachic work on one section of the Shulchan Aruch, on the section of Orachayim. Because Orachayim is the most practical section that people need. It has all the laws of prayer, the laws of tefillin, the laws of tzitzis, the laws of Shabbos, the laws of Yontiv, the laws of Pesach. All of those laws are in Orachayim. He said, that's the part that we have to concentrate on. So in effect, he was imitating the Chaye Odom, but he was going to do it in a manner that was made for the yeshivas and not just for the, so to speak, the plain people.
In certain yeshivas, even today, Chayyotam uh, is the text that's used for halacha. I know in Tells it still is. But in most yeshivas, it, uh, it's on the shelf. So he sets out to write this monumental sefer, the Mishnah Bura. Now, he didn't write it by himself. His son, Revar Yaleib HaKohen Pupko, the Chavetz Chaim was called Kagan. His son was called Pupko, the famous Pupko family in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and other places in the United States, because his wife's maiden name was Pupko. And it was very common under the Tsar to give your child a different last name the rule under the czar was that if you were the only son, you didn't have to go to the army. So a man had six sons, so all of them had a different last name, and they all were only sons. And that was very common uh, in, uh, in uh, Lithuania and in other parts of the Russian Empire, that in order to avoid the army, people took different last names. Now, there was one other book uh, before the Mission of Brewer, written by Rabbi Shlomo Gansfried, who was in Bohemia, in uh, Central Europe, Slovakia, later uh, close to Romania, uh, called the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch, the abridged Shulchan Aruch. Now, in uh, Lithuania, the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch did not gain much popularity. But in Central Europe, uh, the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch was very popular. And it also attempted to do the same thing. It attempted to give the Jew an understanding of how to behave without having to resort to the scholarship of plowing through the large Shulchan Aruch itself with all of its super commentaries. So the Chavetz Chaim and his son-in-law, so his his, son, Son, Rabbi Yaleba Kohen Pupko, wrote a biography of his father. And in the biography of his father, he says that the Mishnah Brewer was written by committee. In other words, the Chofetz Chaim was the general editor, but there were people that wrote it. And it was mainly written by his son-in-law, whose name does not appear in the book. He says, therefore, sometimes you find uh, contradictions in the Mishnah Brewer. One place he says to do this, and then in another place he seems to contradict that. He said you shouldn't be surprised because different hands were used to uh, compose it. But the Chofetz Chaim is the general editor, and he's the one who took responsibility for it. He took such responsibility for it, I have in my home, in my library, an original copy of the Mishnah Brewer, the first edition. At the beginning of the book... The Chofetz Chaim's handwriting, it says Muga. This, I looked over this book and I see that it has all the pages. Because he wouldn't sell a book that, you know, that, that, that didn't have all the pages in it. So he looked over every book and he wrote Muga in the book. That he was the one that looked it over. And here uh, I want to discuss with you how this affected the Jewish world. But first we should hear some ideas from his own introductions to the book. He's telling you why, what it's here. Why is it here? He says, in our time, people don't believe in eternal life anymore. 
the here and now. And he said that's a basic tragedy because that tragedy is what negates a Torah way of life. If a person thinks that this is all there is to it, so then uh, there is uh, no reason for good behavior. There's no reason to observe the mitzvot. There's no reason for Jewish tradition. There's no reason for anything. It's part of the great problem that the secular Jewish world has why to remain Jewish? What, for what? So he says the Torah wrote to us and said, You shall observe my statutes and my commandments. Asher yase osam hodom, that a person should perform them. And he will live through them. So he says the interpretation of It means eternal life. And therefore, if we're talking about eternal life, so if I want to give you the gift of eternal life, we say in the Brocha, when we are by the Torah, God implanted within us eternal life. So if I want to give you eternal life, I would think that he says that people would be interested, right? The Gemara says a, uh, that was the basis of his book about the uh, Loshon Hara. The Gemara says that there was a peddler in the street in you know, in Machna Yehuda, and he was selling. Man boy chayai, man boy chayai. Who wants life? I'm selling life. So there was a long line. People came up and they thought he has, you know, a potion, an elixir, a magic pill. So they said, so what, what did he want? How did we have eternal life? So he said, the posig, mi oish echofetz chayim, oev yomim liros tov. You want to live long? Don't talk, don't talk Lashon Hara, don't talk about others. That's eternal life. So, just as the book, the Chofetz Chaim, was based on the idea that he's going to sell you eternal life, now this book is also based on the idea that he's going to sell you eternal life. How is he going to sell you eternal life? He says the Torah and the observance of mitzvahs is the sustenance for a person's soul. Just as a person's body needs sustenance, right? That's why pizza was invented in the world. So we have also a person's soul needs sustenance. The non-Jewish world, the soul of the non-Jewish world has one type of diet, and the Jewish soul has another type of diet. And the diet in the Jewish world is Torah and mitzvahs, the observance of commandments. And he says, therefore, the bread that sustains the soul are the halachos, and the wine that sustains the soul, because it says in the Pesach, go eat my bread and drink my wine. That's where the Christians took all their nonsense from. 
So the bread, so the Chofetz Chaim says, the bread is knowing the halachas, and the wine is knowing the secrets of Torah, the spirituality of Torah. And those are the two things that sustain our soul. So he says, so when a person passes from the world, so if the soul, so to speak, has been sustained in a good shape, so then in the world to come, it also is in good shape. But if no one took care of it in this world, so then it's atrophied. It, uh, it's without any power in the world to come as well. And because of that, therefore, he said, I want you to know that I'm going to explain to you how to observe the commandments of the Torah. That's the purpose of this book. By observing the commandments of the Torah, you feed your soul. And by feeding your soul, you guarantee your eternity. And he says, now in our time where Shulchan Aruch is so difficult to read, to learn, there are too many super commentaries, he says. And another problem is because of the fact that even if you know all the super commentaries, you don't know what to do because there are so many that they disagree with each other. So then what do you do? So he has this great plan that he's going to clear it up, at least as far as the Orachayim is concerned. And that that's the basis of what he is writing. So here you have a book that becomes your rabbi. My father-in-law told me many, many times, my father-in-law grew up in the house of the Chofetz Chaim, so he knew him very well. He said, somebody would come to the Chofetz Chaim and say, Rebbe, you know, on Shabbos, am I allowed to do this or not? So the Chofetz Chaim would answer, we have to look it up in the Mishnah Brewer. Let's see what the Mishnah Brewer says. So he himself encouraged the idea that it's not the person that answers, it's the book that answers. And that is the sea change in, and we see it today, right? Uh, in our time, in the Chazonish, etc. It's the book that answers. It's the book that contains the information. And the book is accessible to all. He had a great library. He lived a very a life of almost abject poverty. But he had a great library. And because of his library, he says in his introduction that he was able to uh, uh, amass a great deal of knowledge, a great deal of research went into this, and he's able, therefore, uh, to do uh, what's, what's necessary. The main part of the Mishnah Brura concerns itself with Shabbos, with the halachas of Shabbat. And he has an introduction about the importance of Shabbat. It's almost heartbreaking. And we live in a time where our hearts are broken already, so it's not as heartbreaking. But in Eastern European society, where the Shabbat was sacrosanct, where it was holy, where uh, you have to describe how the Jewish world was. For instance, in Salonika, where Jews controlled the port in Salonika. The Jews were the stevedores, 
They were the chandlers, the suppliers. They controlled the port. And we're talking Greece, Sephardic Jews. The port was closed on Shabbat. Closed to everybody. In Gibraltar, till today, most of the commercial ventures and stores, etc., are closed on Shabbat. So that even the non-Jews don't open their stores because that's the day off. All of a sudden, in the 1860s, 1870s, all of this begins to be swept away. Public desecration of the Shabbat enters into the Jewish world. Something which almost never happened in the exile. Uh, there were always were Jews on all levels of the spectrum, at all uh, ends of it. So, you know, some were more, some were less. But uh, the Shabbat was a Shabbat. If you lived in a Jewish town, you knew it was Shabbat. And you didn't have, uh, you know, 15,000 cars going down Rehov Ramban. didn't exist. And they see it being swept away in front of their eyes. And they're powerless to stop it. And in the United States, uh, the Shabbat fell almost immediately when they went off the boat. No matter how hard they tried to remain. I remember in my father's synagogue in Chicago, and we're talking uh, in the uh, 1940s. I was one then. So uh, you'll, you'll get it, yeah. So... Uh, they had, my, my, we had two minyonim on Shabbos. There were 750 men that attended each minyan. It was a tremendous shul. My father was the rov. So they had the hashkoma minyan and the regular minyan. The hashkoma minyan was at 6 in the morning, and the regular minyan was at uh, 9. So I remember as a little boy, I was going, my father's holding my hand. I'm walking up the stairs to the big shul. And there's like 750 men pouring out of the shul. As I said to him, Daddy, what, who, you know, who are these guys? I mean, what are, you know, because we had another 750 men coming for the second minion. And he said, Beryl, don't ask. You don't want to talk about it. But I, in my precocious genius, figured it out because I saw the guys waiting to take a streetcar, to take a trolley to go to work. I had no choice. If you don't come in on Saturday, don't come in on Monday. Their children did not go to Hashkoma Minyan. Their grandchildren were assimilated. And their great-grandchildren may not even be Jewish. So he writes here an impassioned plea for the Shabbat. And he says, you cannot be a Sabbath observer unless you know how to be a Sabbath observer. And he says, the laws are complicated. And especially in our time when there's so much new technology, change in society, all of, you know, it's a different world today. He doesn't talk about time clocks, about electricity. He doesn't talk about, uh, you know... Uh, so many elevators, none of this appears here. But the, the laws of Shabbat 
and the decisions regarding that remain the most difficult area in Piskei Haloche even till today. So he says, if you don't know, so he discusses, for instance, there's a malacha borer. On Shabbos, you're not allowed to pick, uh, let's say, bones from the fish. That's why, that's the origin of gefilte fish. And here they love it because they grind the bones in it too. and you know, So you get the full flavor. But why did they have gefilte fish? Because of the fact that they were afraid that people would pick the bones. And by picking the bones, so there's an iser of borer, right? It's one of the 39 of us malachas. So he said, what if nobody knows anything about the borer, right? Put on the plate meat and chicken, Okay. The guy decides that he's going to put the meat away for shalashudas. So he picks what he is not going to eat, and he wraps it and puts it away. That's wrong. That's borer. What he should do is take what he is going to eat, and the other will be left over. When it's left over, then you wrap it up, and, and that's what you have. So he gives that as an example. So he says if you don't know what borer is, so, you know, so you're a Shomer Shabbos, but, you know, like you did it wrong. And we all know today, I mean, the computer is the primary example. You know, if, uh, if you put the computer, you know, I want to reach you, and I forgot to put the dot in, or I forgot, to, I spelled your name wrong. Nothing. The computer won't, the email will never get there. Uh, that's the example he says with Shabbat. If you don't do it right, so it never gets there, right? Yeah, yeah, there's no address. And therefore, he says, you have to know. How will you know? He said, well, I give you here the third chalik, the third section of the Mishnah Brewer. It's the third and fourth. It's the largest section of the Mishnah Brewer. And I tell you what to do. I explain it to you. And, he, and so he has, because it was meant pretty much for an elite audience. So he, the book is in three sections. One section is the Mishnah Brura, which is the law itself. Then the second section is called the Bayer Halacha, in which he expands upon it and brings all the commentaries and justifies his opinion and tells you what others also think. So that was very popular in the yeshivas. We always learned the Bayer Halacha. And at the bottom, he has the Sharatziun, which are all the footnotes, all of his sources. So it's a monumental scholarly work, just a monumental work. And it penetrated into the Jewish world, into the Jewish religious world. The rabbis did not use it. I shouldn't say they didn't use it, but they, they used the Orach HaShulchan. And the Orach HaShulchan differed with the Mishnah Brewer in many, many issues. But in the yeshiva world, the Mishnah Brura became the staple book. And eventually the yeshiva world came to control the Jewish world, the, the non-Hasidic Jewish world. The Hasidim never used it. 
The Lubavitcher used the Shulchan Aruch Arav, which is uh, written by the Balatanya. And the other chassidim relied upon the, the Rebbe. The Rebbe told them what to do. It's still more oral than written. JM in the AM, we're uh, in the midst of the lecture about the Mishnah Bura done by Rabbi Beryl Wine. And uh, tomorrow morning, of course, we will uh, play it in its entirety to open up JM in the AM and get to its conclusion uh, in the first hour tomorrow morning here at JM in the AM. We're in our nine days format, spoken word format. Uh, here during the nine days on this fourth day of August, the seventh day in the month of um, in the month of Menachem Av. Uh, tomorrow, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Seven o'clock hour, seven forty a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update. We'll get back to our regular schedule Monday morning on the eleventh of Av. Right, Tishabov is being observed on the tenth of Av this year on Sunday. We'll get back to our regular format on the 11th of Av, please God. Um, full schedule, as you would suspect, on a Thursday here at the Nahum Siegel Network, coming up at 9 o'clock in just a couple of minutes. Charlie Harari will take a look at the topic of winning in a new way, uh, a discussion about Tishabov. Spin class with Michael Fragan and the latest uh, primary news. That'll be at 9.30. Jew in the City Speaks Encore. Allison will speak to Lawrence Burian, uh, author of uh, A Boy from Busina, a Holocaust memoir. Uh, that's Life Encore with Miriam Alwalek with Dr. Tali Lando, pediatric ENT surgeon, discussing her uplifting and poignant book, Helen Back, Wife and Mother, Doctor and Patient, Dragon Slayer. Thursday Live Lunch with Yossi Zweig, three weeks format. Uh, that'll happen between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Throwback Thursday at 1 o'clock. JM Rewind at 4. Tani Talks Parsha with Tani Gutterman at 10 p.m. tonight. A brief discussion about the Torah portion of the week. And tomorrow morning, of course, we will reconvene with JM in the a.m. Starting at the 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN. My brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at on the Nachum Single Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a Thursday for us here at JM and the AM. Full schedule coming up all day long on NSN. Yassi Zweig, Thursday Live Lunch starts at 11 a.m. Exclusively for us on NSN. Tani Talks Parsha with Tani Gutterman, 10 o'clock tonight, right here on the Nahum Siegel Network. Tomorrow morning we're back. We'll start at 6 a.m. Have a fabulous Thursday. Till tomorrow, Nahum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.